90 years ago this week, the guns fell silent in the great war that failed to end all wars. Contrary to expectations, the treaty at Versailles did nothing to bring about world peace. Hostilities continue. And the contrast between our beautiful world, our wonderful world, and the awful reality of war were graphically illustrated in that uh, clip from Good Morning Vietnam. And we've not learnt from Vietnam either. Uh, In the generation since then, we've continued to see uh, conflicts across the world. Hundreds of thousands have been left dead. Whole communities have been ethnically cleansed. Millions live in poverty and fear, some at home, others as refugees elsewhere. Will we ever have peace? At a global level, peace is very far from the norm. It's not much different at a local level, as we thought earlier. We have terrorist threats, we have violence on our streets, we have conflict between communities of different ethnic backgrounds. And perhaps more immediately relevant, there's conflict in our own homes, in our communities, in our workplaces. Husbands and wives at loggerheads, parents and children not on speaking terms, bullying in the playground, backbiting in the office or common room. There's conflict everywhere, in our world, in our nation, in our community and in our homes. Will we ever have peace? At a local level, peace is far from the norm. And what about on the inside? Is peace the norm in our hearts? Can we honestly say that we're not fearful of the future or distressed by relationships within our family, angry at the way we've been treated at work, depressed by the state of the economy? And then deep down in the recesses of our hearts, in that private place that we try to avoid, are we at peace with God? Will we ever have peace. Globally, locally, internally, peace is far from the norm. For most of us, peace is elusive. It's like clutching at straws, grasping at shadows, encountering a mirage. My theme this morning is just that. Will we ever have peace? And this short chapter in Ephesians has much to say about the subject and we're going to look together briefly at these verses under three headings. Conflict is real, Peace is possible. Jesus is central. Firstly then, conflict is real. As I've already said, conflict is sadly quite normal. In fact, I'd say conflict is universal. It's the common experience of humanity and it has been throughout history. And nowhere was that conflict deeper than in the division between first century Jews and Gentiles, between God's chosen people and the nation's around them. Throughout the scriptures we see this great divide, a divide that was racial and cultural, but fundamentally was religious. See how Paul uh, describes the Gentiles in verse 11. Therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision. Jews are calling the Gentiles uncircumcised and it was no compliment, I assure you. 
It was an insult intended that way. If you recall the story of David and Goliath, the young David asked Israel's soldiers, who is this uncircumcised Philistine who dares to defy the armies of the living gods? And the fact they were uncircumcised reflected the fact that they were outside of uh, citizenship in Israel, excluded from God's covenant community. Verse 12, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise. Here, Paul's actually speaking to, to Christian people who come from a Gentile background. So he's saying that's what you were. And nowhere was this division more graphically demonstrated than in the temple. The temple was the place where the Jews came to make their sacrifices. And William Barclay, in his commentary on Ephesians, writes this. He says, The temple consisted of a series of courts, each one a little higher than the one that went before, with the temple itself in the inmost of the courts. First there was the court of the Gentiles, then the court of the women, then the court of the Israelites, then the court of the priests, and finally the holy place itself. Only into the first of them could a Gentile come. Between it and the court of the women there was a wall, or rather a kind of screen of marble, beautifully wrought, and let into it at intervals were tablets which announced that if a Gentile proceeded any further, he was liable to instant death. That's what Paul's referring to in verse 14 when he speaks of the dividing wall of hostility. Gentiles were sometimes described by the Jews as dogs. There was a hatred, a hostility towards them. No Jew would welcome one in his home. No Jew would sit down to eat with one. And the very design of the temple kept these foreigners at a distance. Conflict was very real. But the temple itself existed because of a far greater and deeper conflict. A conflict that lies at the heart of all other conflicts. That between all of humanity and their creator, God himself. And in verses 1 to 2, Paul is addressing, as I've said, Gentiles who come to faith in Jesus Christ. And he writes this, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who's now at work, in those who are disobedient. They're disobedient. But then in verse 3, Paul speaks of every Christian, whether from Jewish or Gentile backgrounds, uh, and this is what he says, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature, following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. At the heart of understanding Christian faith is the fact of human disobedience. It began with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. They chose to do what they thought was good for themselves rather than obeying what God had said was good for them. And from that day onwards, all of humanity has done the same. We look after number one. That's what's most important. And we deny every other authority, whether it's God, human authorities, even our own consciences. We set ourselves up as the rulers of our own lives, as little kings. Listen to what Mike Cain says in this excellent little book, The Real Life Jesus. 
In the story of our lives, we determine what is true and what is right and what things mean. We live as we see fit to live. The whole enterprise sounds so fertile, but it's led us out of the garden, up the path, and into a wasteland. So what happens when the stories collide? What if in your story you get the promotion, and in mine I do? What if in your story you get the place on the team, and in my story I do? What if in your story this land belongs to your people, and in mine it is ours? What if in your story your people want to wipe my people off the face of the planet? What happens if in my story what I'm doing is morally right and in your story what I'm doing is morally wrong? God is the king of the universe. He created it all and is working out his good plan for it all. But rather than all of us uniting in his good will for his great kingdom, each of us plays king. We hatch our own little plans for our own little kingdoms. But when your plan and my plan clash, whose plan do we go with? If you're king and I'm king, when we meet, who gets to sit on the throne? So we fight for it. That's why the story of humankind is a story of war. Not just with bombs over Basra, but with words over the washing up. Each of us is fighting to get our own way. And that's ultimately what sin is. Appointing myself as king and fighting to get my own way. Uh, Mike Cain goes on, Sin is not what we think it is. It's not about going wrong on a few of God's rules, but about going wrong in our whole relationship with God. You see, sin is when we set ourselves up as God. So that instead of living for his will, each of us is living for our own will. And the result is a world in conflict. Each of us has been wounded in the crossfire, but the fact is that each of us has fired our share of the bullets too. In our world, we are at war with one another because we are at war with God. (coughs) And that's why we are objects of God's wrath. Verse 3. God cannot allow us to continue to be at war with him. But because of his great love for us, he wants to make it possible for peace, for reconciliation. And that's why, right from the outset, God introduced for the people of Israel a sacrificial system. A system that makes forgiveness possible. And the temple was the focus of that sacrificial system. And the design of the temple makes it clear that God is separate, that we cannot enter his presence, the way those courts were designed, that only in the holy place, once a year, could one person enter, the high priest, and only when a sacrifice of an animal had been made, when blood had been shed. You see, God's holiness couldn't be trifled with. Um, sacrifice had to be made in order for human beings to enter into a relationship with God for their rebellion to be dealt with. But this provision of sacrifices, fulfilled eventually with the death of Jesus on the cross, demonstrates that although conflict is real, peace is possible. So secondly, peace is possible. In the little section, uh, verses 14 to 18, the word peace occurs four times. 
It describes peace between humanity and God and peace between people who might otherwise be at conflict with one another. See verse 14. For he, that is Christ himself, is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Jew and Gentile, two groups that have been in conflict for generations, have been made one. And they're made one because each of them is reconciled to God through Christ. Look at verse 15, partway through. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace, and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. So Paul is telling us peace is possible. You can have peace with your family, peace with your neighbours and colleagues, and potentially there's peace here between nations. But most importantly, you can have peace with God. You can become a member of his household, united with all his family. That's what verses 19 to 22 are about. Consequently, you're no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole buildings join together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, in relationship to him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. The enmity between God and Jew, between God and Gentile, and between Jew and Gentile, and therefore by implication between every ethnic group of Christians who are in Christ, has been done away with. The enmity has been destroyed. Christ has become our peace. Reconciliation, true, deep and lasting recon- reconciliation are now possible in Christ. In my ministry among international students I have the great privilege of witnessing the power of Christ that breaks down national, cultural and ethnic divisions as people find new life in Christ. Several years ago, at a European student conference, I had the joy of witnessing Christians from Jewish backgrounds and from Gentile, from Palestinian backgrounds, having meals together and rejoicing in their unity in Christ. More recently, at a meeting of an international fellowship here in Oxford, they were saying goodbye to Satsuki, a Japanese girl, who was one of their group. And towards the end of uh, their gathering, she stood up Uh, to say a few words, and this is what she said. She said, I want to say to all my Chinese friends here how sorry I am for all the pain and suffering my country caused your people in the Second World War. During my time in Oxford and in this fellowship, I've come to realise that Chinese people are not the demons that I was always taught they were. And I'm so glad to have been able to enjoy fellowship with you all. Then just this week, I had an email from the head of a Christian student movement in Serbia telling me about their annual conference this weekend. They've invited, as a main speaker, a Christian from Croatia. This is the power of the Gospel of Jesus, power that can break down cultural pride and prejudice, 
Gospel that brings people together who were once divided by history and ethnic divisions, creating a loving community of people who previously hated one another. So conflict is real, but peace is possible. And then thirdly, Jesus is central. In the six brief chapters that make up this letter uh, to the Ephesians, uh, Jesus, Christ, Lord and him, referring to Jesus, occur more than 80 times. Jesus really is the central theme of this letter. The peace that is possible is possible only because of him. We looked just now at verses 1 to 4 where we saw just how desperate a predicament humanity is in. We face the wrath of Almighty God because our rebellion against him. In verse 1 we are described as being dead in transgressions and sins. Now that's not exactly how we would see uh, people, but in this great university city in which we live and work, people appear to be very much alive. Great scholars with lively minds, great athletes with vigorous bodies, with great artists with uh, vivacious personalities. But Paul's saying here that without Christ, they and all of us are dead. Dead in transgressions and sins. In the area that matters most, which is neither mind, nor body, nor personality, but our spirits, we are, if we're without Jesus, without life. We're blind to his glory. We're deaf to the voice of the Spirit. We have neither a love for God, nor any desire for fellowship with him. As one commentator has said, those without Christ are as unresponsive as a corpse. But in Christ, we can be made alive. Verse 4. Because of his great love for us, God, who's rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Through Christ, it's possible to be made alive. In him, we can be restored to the relationship with God that actually defines life. By his power, we can live the life that God intended. How is it possible? Well, these verses make it abundantly clear. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died and he, des- he died by design. Yes, he rose and is alive today, but the emphasis here falls on his death. We see it in the word blood in verse 13. You who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. We see it in the word cross in verse 16. In this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the, God, through, through the cross. We've thought already about the sacrificial system that God gave the people of Israel as a means of providing forgiveness. At the heart of this system was the idea that our lives are forfeits because of making ourselves gods, uh, kings in God's place. We're guilty of treason and we deserve death. And if there's to be any possibility of our going free, then a substitute needs to die in our place. 
And that's what the whole sacrificial system was about, providing substitutes. When the Bible speaks of blood, it signifies that a death has taken place. So the blood of Christ means the death of Christ. And his death fulfills that Old Testament system. Jesus died once and for all, so that those who put their trust in him might find themselves set free and at peace with God and adopted into his family. And at that point, everything changes. We're acknowledging Jesus as our rightful king. We are accepting forgiveness as a free gift from his hands. We're joining ourselves to the new community of God's people. A community that's built on the foundation of God's word. That's what the apostles and prophets refer to in verse 20. And Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. Verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Jesus is the one to whom all those scriptures point. Jesus is the one around whom God's kingdom is being built. Jesus is the one in whom we find our true identity, both in relation to Jesus himself, but also in relation to others who live in relationship with him. And as we are built together in him, we become God's new temple, the church, the place where God lives. Verse 21, in him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too, are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. And so in God's church, we're not strangers any longer. We're not aliens. We're not far off from God. We're no longer in conflict with him or with one another. We're at peace. We are fellow citizens of one Christian city of God who come from every tribe and nation and language. We're united with God and with one another. We're at peace with God and with one another. And it's all because of Jesus. Jesus is our life. Jesus is our joy. Jesus is our peace. Conflict is real. Peace is possible. Jesus is central. So in response to the question, will we ever have peace? The answer is, it depends. It depends on our response to Jesus. If we reject Jesus, then peace will continue to be elusive. Conflict will continue to feature in every corner of our lives as we continue trying to be kings in a world where everyone else wants to be king too. Without Jesus, there will be no peace. But if we will listen to his words, if we will submit to his rule, if we will accept his selfless death on the cross as the means of our salvation, then peace can be ours. Peace with God, peace with brothers and sisters in the Christian community. As I conclude, let me address a few words to those who are already believers and some to those who are not yet. To the believers, let me encourage you to avail yourselves of God's power to love those who are different, those who are strangers to you. Remember that Jesus' death on the cross was what it was designed to achieve. Peace with God, yes, but peace also with brothers and sisters of different ethnic backgrounds. 
So three very practical applications. Let me urge you to welcome the stranger, particularly as they come into the fellowship here. Whatever their colour of their skin, whatever their English language skill, welcome the stranger, the newcomer. It can be very lonely being with a whole crowd of people rushing around, collecting children, having your coffee, if nobody speaks to you. Make, talk to people you don't know. Make the stranger welcome. Secondly, work hard at incorporating different ethnic elements in your church gatherings. Try to make sure it's not kind of monocultural in the way you, you do things. At our church prayer meeting just this last week, we were praying for the Congo, as we've done this morning. But our, our music leader had found a song from the Congo, which he taught us. So we sang this wonderful kind of African song with its beat and so on as we prayed for that country. It was great. It was uplifting and enriching. And thirdly, pray for greater wisdom and sensitivity in the way you relate to those who are different. Sometimes it can be a bit awkward. Things are different. But pray that God would give you wisdom and in time it will become an enriching experience, not a dividing one. But my last and my most urgent word is to those who are not yet followers of Jesus Christ. The creator of the universe, whose authority you have rejected, whose love you have spurned, will one day be your judge. On that day you will face the full force of his wrath. He's a holy God. He's a perfectly and gloriously good God. And he cannot tolerate rebels in his sight. He cannot allow anyone into his presence who falls short of his perfection. And so unrepentant rebels, those who insist on being their own kings, will be cast out of God's presence. They'll be sent to that place where God is absent, where there is no peace. No peace of any kind, not for a moment, not for eternity. But this holy and awesome God is also a loving God. He doesn't desire that any should perish. And by giving himself in Christ to die on the cross, God himself has made it possible for you to be forgiven. Forgiven of your sin and your rebellion and brought to peace with God, reconciled to him. God in Christ offers you Peace. Peace with himself and peace with others who trust him. But peace with God is not without its cost. If we are at peace with God and we identify ourselves with God's people, then there will be many who will hate us. Just as they hated Jesus, they will hate us too. You might ask why? Well, those who want to remain as kings in their own lives, will always hate those who represent the one true king, who challenges their authority. But one day when Jesus returns, those who hate us will be put in their place. And Jesus will reign in his perfectly restored kingdom, in which there will be perfect and permanent peace. Will we ever have peace? You can have it today if you'll have Jesus as your king.